you go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up right where we left off, which is our custom. So, so 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And let me go ahead and prepare you as you're turning there, especially if you're not a Christian this morning. What we're about to read, at least initially, will sound very much like the opposite of Christianity as you have probably come to understand it. But it's not. It, it is actually very much in line with what God desires for us as Christians as we live in this world. So I, I want you to pay very close attention with the rest of us. Um, and let's all listen closely to what God has to say as he speaks to us through the Apostle John this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray really quick before we begin. Ah, Lord, please help me to be, to be faithful to you and helpful to the people that you've gathered here this morning to hear your word. And let your word change us. Um, let your spirit and your word combine to change us so that, so that together we can reflect your heart to a watching and listening world. So that others, many others, will come to know Jesus as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Think, think really quickly for a moment about watching a game on television. Big game, and a big play just happens, whether football, soccer, whatever you watch. A big play just happens, and you see it in real time. It happens so quickly that while you can see some things and you you can appreciate it to a certain extent, you can't really see everything that just took place. But then all of a sudden, the instant replay comes, and they slow the tape down, and you really get to see what just happened. And you realize that Messi put that ball through two people's legs before he, he scored. And, and just you see more of what happens when you slow it down. And that's what I want to do this morning with this passage. I want to I go through it really quickly, in real time, so to speak. Uh, and then after that, just come right back, slow it down, and let's, let's get the instant replay so that we can appreciate even more of what God is trying to tell us here through this passage. So as we go through very quickly in real time, I want us to see... What we as Christians ought not to do, what we should do instead, or or rather right in between that, why we shouldn't do it, and then finally what we should do instead. So let's do that together. What we should not do, why we shouldn't do it, and what we ought to do instead. Verse 15, John says there, do not love the world or the things in the world. So again, very fast, real time, that is what we should not do, but why? Why should we not do it? That's what John begins to tell us as he continues. In verse 15, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world, then, as John speaks about it here, is opposed to our Heavenly Father in such a way that we cannot love the world and have the love of the Father in us at the same time. Now, you may have lots of questions about that. You may compare that to your personal experience and say, that's not true. I can love the world and the Father at the same time. I do it all the time. Let's just allow the Bible to say what it says for now and stick with me. We cannot love the world 
and have the love of the Father in us at the same time. In the sense that John means here. So that's reason number one. We should not love the world or the things in the world because this world is opposed to our Heavenly Father. And then John continues in verse 16 and he gives us another reason. He says we should not love the world or the things in the world for or because all that is in the world... And then he lists those things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The second reason we should not love the world or the things in the world is very simply the fact that the things in the world do not originate with the Father, but rather they originate with the world that is opposed to him. They don't come to us from our God and Father, but from the world that is opposed to him. And then finally in verse 17, the Apostle John tells us that the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And there's the third reason. Why shouldn't we love the world or the things in the world? Very simply, neither the world nor its desires will last. They are passing away. And if you love them, you can rest assured. Very soon they will leave you. And they will probably leave you with such a dependence upon them that you will be left, kept in an etor- uh, eternal, if you will, place of torment and withdrawal. You'll, you'll have such a dependency on the world and its pleasures, and it will not be there to satisfy you. You will be left. Neither the world nor its desires will last. They will pass away. So, so there's why we should not love the world or the things in the world. And if that's the case, if that's why we shouldn't love the world, then, then what should we do instead? Verse 17 tells us. Are we going fast enough for anybody this morning? Verse 17 tells us. Can you believe it? We're at the end of the passage. It's implied here, whoever does the will of God abides forever. We should do the will of God. Which in this passage is the exact opposite of loving the world. All right, so there's your real time, very fast. We know what we should not do. We know why we shouldn't do it. And we know what we should do instead. And if this were a lecture, we could all go home now, but it's a sermon. And so far, we've gotten a lot of truth from the Bible, but it's not the sort of truth that really connects with the heart, is it? It's rather on the surface at this point, and and really we have to begin to ask different questions if it's going to touch the heart, and that's what God intends. And the question we need to ask ourselves, one which I think the text begs us to ask, is this, am I currently known in heaven as one who loves the world, in this sense, or am I currently known in heaven as one who does the will of God, in a verse 17 sense? Now that's the question our hearts need to be answered this morning. And we really can't answer that question until we know a little bit more about what John means when he speaks about the world, the things in the world, and what exactly it means to love the world as John uses that, that term this morning. So let's not, let's not waste any more time. What does John mean when he speaks about the world? Well, let me tell you a story uh, and that I think will help you. It takes us back 15 years ago, and 15 years ago, I discovered a new language. I guess you didn't know, you didn't know I had that, huh? I, I discovered a new language, and uh, here's how it happened. I was on the campus of Howard University 
I was 20 years old at the time. I was going into the first of what would be two senior years there, and uh, nobody laughed. I thought that was funny. <laughs> but I was going into the first of two senior years there, and I came across this new language when I met this guy named Herb. I love that name, Herb. Anyway, I met Herb, and Herb spoke this language fluently. The language was Christianese. Some of you have heard of it. You speak it fluently. I've heard you speak. I've become fluent in this myself after 15 years. But, but here's, how it, here's how it works. Herb would do these things. He would use these words. It, it, it wasn't like he was using... That, man, that's a step down. It wasn't like Herb was using words that I had never heard before. The words themselves weren't strange. He was just using them in very strange and weird ways. For instance, he would always use the word powerful. Everything was powerful. I mean, I I hardly knew this guy. I think I had known him about 48 hours by this point. And I heard, heard him say powerful at least 50 times, which meant I was around Herb way too much. But he would come up to me, and he would always do this little head thing. And he came up to me one Thursday morning. I believe this is the Thursday morning that I actually prayed to receive Christ. But he came up to me Thursday morning, and I knew it was Thursday because of what he said. He walks up and he says, bro... I went to a Wednesday night service. I went to, last night, we went to our Wednesday night service, and man, it was powerful. <laughs> and I said, really? Tell me, uh, tell me what made it so powerful. And he just went on and on. But he would, he would use these words all the time. And I, I felt like something out of the Princess Bride. Like, you, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Uh, but he would, here, my favorite one, my favorite one was when he... Mignon, you'll get this because you went to Howard, but we were, we were walking down campus together, which means I was hiding from Herb. He found me and caught up to me. That's, that's how this worked. I realize now that he was actually in the follow-up stage because I had become a Christian by this time, and he was trying to establish me as a believer in the faith. I, mean, I, I didn't know any of that at the time. I was just trying to get to, to the dining hall. We were walking Mignon from Cook Hall. We went around the fine arts building, and, and as we were going to the Blackburn Dining Hall there, we, we saw this guy passing out flyers for a local nightclub. And so I, I took one, Herb refused, and, and Herb looked at me kind of funny, and I was wondering what the problem was. I did this all the time. Get the flyer, throw it in the trash, you know, or look at it and, and go out later with your friends. But, but Herb, his reaction to this thing, it was like kryptonite to him. I, I took this flyer, and he, he cringed. And I said, what's wrong? And he looked at me. He looked at me and he, he said the strangest thing. He said, you know, Raymond, I used to go to those things too when I was in the world. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, where do you think you are now? What, I mean, what do you call this place? And... Most important question, where are you hiding all of the normal Christians? Will you please introduce me to one of them? But, but you realize what was happening here is Herb was speaking Christianese, God bless his heart, and, and he, he, was really, he was using the word world in the way that John uses it in our passage. And that was the first time I had ever heard it used that way. Not simply referring to the planet Earth or the human race in general, but to what one pastor, a guy by the name of David Jackman, called an organized system of human civilization and activity which is opposed to God and alienated from him. The world, he said, represents everything that prevents mankind from loving or obeying his creator. 
And the rest of the Bible speaks about this as well. For instance, James in his book, in the book of James in chapter 4, verse 4, James says there that friendship with the world is hatred toward God or enmity with God. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's interesting, he speaks there about a guy named Demas. And earlier in his letter to Philemon, Demas was one of the guys listed as one of Paul's fellow companions and workers for the gospel. But by the time Paul gets to the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10, you'll see him speaking about Demas. And he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas hadn't left the world, but he loved the world so much that John is talking about here. And we know that John has something like this in mind because even later in this letter, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he'll go on to say that the whole world... Now, John is not one to deny the sovereignty of God and God's ultimate control over the created order, but he says that the whole world, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, is under the control of the evil one. And so I'm hoping this will set your mind at ease because here's what it means. It means that when John tells us that we should not love the world or the things in the world, he's not telling us that we should not love people. Are you with me on that? He's not telling us we should not love people. Rather, he's saying we should not love the human system that is controlled by the devil and that is constantly at rebellion against God, which with all of its desires will very soon pass away. So if that's what it means when John speaks about the world, what then does it mean to love the world in the sense that John speaks about that here? Well, look at your Bibles again. The first thing we want to do is start right there in verse 15 and we'll get a hint. The first thing you want to notice is right there and John says if anyone loves the world. Do you see that? You see that word loves? It's very important that that word is in the present active tense. If anyone loves the world presently, actively, consistently, that's that's the sense of what John is saying here. We'll come across this idea again by the time we get to chapter 3 where he says that if anyone has been born of God, he does not go on sinning or keep sinning, make a practice of sinning. There's a present, continuous, consistent thing that we're talking about. So John is is not speaking here about someone who, who simply... Sins, falls into sin, is perhaps over-attracted to some aspect of the world and then is, is torn up and, and upset and, and uh, very contrite and, and coming before God in humility and repentance upon sinning. That's not who John is talking about. He's talking about someone who loves the world. This is characteristic of them. It's active, it's present, it's continuous. Such a, per- such a person devotes himself or herself to to the full support of this rebellious system we're talking about, to the enjoyment of its pleasures. And quite often, this person is simply swimming downstream with the rest of this system. They don't think so much about temptation the way that you do, some of you. To them, that's just opportunity. Very different the way they view these things. And so... So I, and I remember being on that side of the fence just 15 years ago. It was very different. I, temptation was... What's that? Temptation is just stuff that you, you actually don't want to do, right? But for some reason, it's appealing to you at the moment. I didn't, I didn't have very many things in that category. It was just opportunities. Perhaps some of you are there this morning, and Christ wants to come today and to change that. 
Anyway, so you get the idea that we're talking about here when we say what it means to love the world in this sense. It's, it's a present, active, continuous swimming downstream with this rebellious system, perhaps even unaware of the fact that this is what you're doing. Now John continues in verse 16, and he moves from just saying, here's what it is to love the world, and he begins to help us see what then are these things of the world that we're not supposed to love. We know what it means when he speaks about the world. What are these things of the world? Look at verse 16. John begins to speak there to us, and he says, you should not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world... So there it is. Watch this. John is about to tell us all that is in the world. And whatever he means by the world, there's nothing outside of what he's about to describe that's included in it. Are you with me? All that is in the world. And then first let me call your attention to what he does not list here. Money. Houses. Cars. Clothes. Food, flat screen TVs, sports, movies, video games, decks of cards. Now, while it's certainly possible to love those things and to be obsessed over those things way too much, you want to be sure here to notice that John when he speaks about the things in the world. He's not simply talking about those external things. It's it's clear here that he doesn't have in mind material things in and of themselves as such. But rather our attitude toward those things or our, our appetite for those things. Do you see that? All that is in the world, it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Not so much possessions themselves, but pride in possessions. That's, that's very important. Because what John's trying to teach us here is that the seductions of the world are not simply those external things that we can give up for Lent one week at a time. No, the, the world affects us much more deeply than that. It gets as close as our desires. It reaches for the heart from a very near place. And we must not love it. We must not love the world or the things in the world. John gives us three helpful categories for describing all that's in the world. Let's look at them one at a time. He speaks here about the desires of the flesh. And I'll call it the lust of the flesh because that's really what that word desires means there. In the original Greek language, it's the word epithemia. And every time you see that in the Bible, or I should say most times, Overwhelmingly so, it's speaking about lust, it's translated that way as lust, or whenever it's translated as passions or desires, it's, it's usually speaking about that, with rare exceptions, in the sinful sense. So let's call it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in, I'm going I'm to say the pride of life instead of pride and possessions. And here's why. That, that phrase there, again in the Greek, if you translate it literally, um, the word possessions is actually the word bios, which is always translated life. So let's, let's just say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And let's see if we can practically figure out what, what does that look like in our lives every single day. Maybe one or two examples. Uh, and then, then let's see if, if, that, if that is a good way for God to kind of bring this truth home to us. All right, so the lust of the flesh. 
What's that? And, and consider as we go through this, are you being overtaken to some degree by the lust of the flesh? Uh, consider then for a moment those temptations which come to you and which seem to be attached to some desire that your body simply will not let you ignore. A lust of the flesh. M- maybe maybe you're, not, you're not married at this point and you find yourself at times being overtaken by a desire for the pleasures um, which, according to God's will, belong exclusively to that marriage relationship. And with present company, that's how I'll, I'll say it. Don't forget. I understand what it's like to be in that position. Most, I mean, everybody does at some point. Don't forget this. Don't forget what we heard last week when Robert Greene was preaching and we went through 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 14. Never forget these things. This is such a... And put this in your heart. Put this in your heart and learn to pray this way and learn to apply the word of God to your heart this way by the power of his spirit. Never forget what the Bible says to you in verse 14 here of 1 John chapter 2. You are strong. And you know what I, you know what I love about that? You almost feel uncomfortable in an environment like this where we talk so much about Jesus and Jesus being our strength, and, and God being our strength, and, and us being weak. You almost feel ashamed to repeat what the Bible says here about you. You are strong. You almost can't even give yourself permission to say that if, you, if you're not careful. It's like, I know the Bible says it, but we shouldn't speak that way about ourselves. Look, you should always speak about yourself the way the Bible speaks about you. So at one moment, boldly confess how weak you are, and then at another moment, when God thinks it's appropriate, boldly confess how strong you are. The Bible doesn't say here that Jesus is strong. That's true, but that's not the emphasis of the Scripture here. The emphasis of the Scripture here is that you are strong if you believe in Christ Jesus. I didn't say that just because it's true. I said that because we need to hear it. I said that because we need to hear it. It's true, and we need to remember it. You are strong. Why? Well, because you belong to Jesus Christ. You're connected to God in the life of the Spirit through faith in Christ. You are strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Yes, through faith in Christ, but you have to remember this. Because these temptations will come. The lust of the flesh will seek to overtake us. But we've got to learn how to take the Word of God, apply it to our lives and to our hearts, so that that fire, that, that fire of lust, as soon as it, it's, it, it pops up, it's, it's quenched, it's put out. The longer you leave it there, the, I'm telling you, the worse it gets. You're strong, the word of God lives in you. You have overcome the evil one. Now, verse 15, do not love the world. What about the lust of the eyes? What is that? What's that? Well, think about it this way. Think about... Think about some temptation that comes to you through the eyes and that basically has the effect of trying to rob you of your ability to be content with what you have. Something that takes you from I see it 
to I need it, to I must have it now or very soon. See, Christian, beware. Not, not just you, Christian, but Christian. Beware. <laughs> beware when you, when you see this happening to your heart. Something which starts with sight, with the eyes, taking you to a place where you all of a sudden need something. I'm talking about infomercials and other things. But you all of a sudden need something, that combination vacuum and toothbrush for only three easy payments of $19.99. But I need, I need, I need, I need this thing all of a sudden. Well, do you really? And how did you come to need this? Did you discover this need by, by listening to God? No, it came in through the eyes. You convinced yourself that you needed this thing, and now all of a sudden you had to have it at whatever cost. See, it's, it's not, listen, it's not the house. It, it's why you need it. And it's when you begin to say things like this, I, I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to give sacrificially to the work of the gospel. I can't afford to do those things because I have to save up for... That's what we're talking about. The way what you see shapes your priorities and what you think your needs are. That's what we're talking about. The lust of the eyes. Are you being overtaken in some area by the lust of the eyes? And I mean significantly. Not like, you, you know, it happens here and then you spot it and you, oh Lord, please help me. I mean significantly. That you, you're almost, if we're not careful, you might be kind of floating downstream with it. But are you guys with me in what I'm saying? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and what about the pride of life? What appears here in the English Standard Version as the pride and possessions. The pride of life. Now, think about it this way. When somebody else, here's an example, somebody else shares uh, an exciting story with you, do you see that as your opportunity right away to say, I see your story and I raise you my own? Like, do, do you always have a better or more exciting version of that story from your life that you're just waiting for a, a, a brief pause to share with that person? See, this is, this is one of the things that I've been recently very convicted about in my own life. I mean, this is one that I've noticed, and I hear it. I have to actually stop myself from saying it because I hear it in my head. And really, and I'm not saying this is what you do, but this is me confessing my own sin. This is, this is where I hear something, and, and immediately I want to put the spotlight back on myself. Which, which to some degree I suppose is understandable, right? I, I've been swimming downstream with the world longer than I've been a Christian. I can understand that. But I'm, I'm thankful to God that he's alerting me to it. He's showing me for what it really is. And that I'm having an opportunity to repent of what is really the, the pride of life. What, what about you? I mean, I don't know what it is that touches your heart. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a difficult time not having excessive pride in where you went to school or graduated from, where your kids are going to school. Uh, maybe you've got 50 million bumper stickers about how much better your kid is than someone else's. Right? The pride of life is big business. And I, listen, I'm not saying you have to scrape that off of your car. 
please don't get me wrong here. We're, we're talking about something which needs all of God's power to address our hearts. That is having God's spirit come in and, and protect us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is this helping anybody? I'm, I'm trying to be helpful. All right, let me, let, me, let me try to help us in one more way. How, how, how does God help us? All of us, at some point, find ourselves attracted to the world in one of these ways. Perhaps there's something particular that keeps showing up in our life. And we all, we all find ourselves here, but how does God help us? And let me, let me keep, read the Bible again. Verse 15, it's actually mentioned here. You, you might miss it. But this is how he moves us from perhaps being someone characterized by loving the world in this sense to being someone characterized more by doing the will of God in a verse 17 sense. Verse 15 says, if anyone loves the world, what do we know about that person? The love of the Father is not in him. Watch this. All right, wake up. Watch this. Here's what that means. That means that if the love of the Father is in him, then he does not, and and by the grace of God, will not love the world in this sense. The key, then, to not loving the world is not simply trying our hardest to resist the world and all of its seductions, but rather to have the love of the Father in us. That's the key. To have the love of the Father in us. Not simply to try to resist and, and I'm not going to get away. No, no. It, it, no, having the love of the Father in us. There's a better way than just trying to muster up all of our willpower. Chris DeRocco told a story here a number of months ago, and some of you may remember it. But for those who don't, let me, let me share it again. It's in, it's in Greek mythology, and there was a guy named Ulysses. And he was passing by the island where the sirens were. And the sirens were known for having the most beautiful and alluring song. And they would entice people with with that beautiful and alluring song to come to the shores of the island where the sirens were. The only problem was is that the sirens were deadly, brutal creatures that would devour the people who crashed on their shores. So what would happen is the sailors would hear this song and they would lose their senses because they were so captivated by its beauty. And they would just drift in the direction of the song. They would crash on the shores, get shipwrecked, and the sirens would absolutely devour them. Terrible day. One guy was passing through, Ulysses, and he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want to hear the song because I love it. It calls out to me. It, it's, I know it's going to be wonderful. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to tie me to the mast of this ship. You guys all put earplugs in so that you don't hear a thing. And no matter how much I beg, don't let me get off of this ship. Don't take these ropes off of me. Right? And so here he is. He, he gets strapped down. And, and the song starts to play. And he's enjoying the song. The song of the sirens. The seductive song. And it's, it, his heart just so wants to go in that direction. But he's restrained by something. And he can't get out. You know, and, and the picture that there is, is how we tend to try to deal with our sinful desires. Not really addressing the heart and the things that we love at the deepest level, but just trying to find some sort of way to, to get a religious system or a moral system that keeps us strapped down to something, some rule, you know, that really doesn't do the trick. By the time your kids leave and go to college, those, those ropes are gone. I see them. I work with them. Those ropes are gone. That heart has to be different. The better way 
was like the guy named Jason. Jason was going past the same island, and here's what he said. He said, now, I'm not going to put anything in my ears. Don't tie me down. He brought a guy named Orpheus with him, and Orpheus was known to play the most beautiful music in all the land. And Jason put Orpheus there in the boat with him, and he said, Orpheus, as we get by in the range of the siren song, I want you to play your most beautiful and alluring song right in my ears. And Orpheus played that song, and Jason was protected from the alluring song of the sirens and the seduction of the song, an attraction to something that would have ended up destroying him because he found a greater attraction in the superior beauty of the song of Orpheus. Listen. The love of the Father protects us from an attraction to things that would destroy us. It expels from our hearts a love for lesser things. It's what we talk here so often about when Thomas Chalmers in the 19th century spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. It kicks out of our hearts everything that does not belong there. Now here's the question. How then does God put this love into our hearts? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5 through 8. We're beginning to wrap up, by the way, in case you were curious. But Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, says here that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there it is, right? We just need God to pour His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Yes, before you imagine that Holy Spirit as being something separate from Jesus and the Gospel, let's keep reading. Lest we make that very common mistake of trying to bypass Christ and the cross to get to the Holy Spirit. Oh, I wish I could get some help in here. I, 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 oh, man. Verse 6. For while we were still weak. For while we... So, in other words, God's got to pour this love into our heart by the Holy Spirit given to us. How does he do that? What is it connected to? For, it's connected to all of this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God puts his love into our hearts, pours it in through the Holy Spirit as that is connected to the death of Christ. The cross. Now notice what he keeps saying. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his present tense, shows, not just showed in the past, Through the cross, God still shows us His love today. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ on the cross and believing in what He has done for us there, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, is poured into our hearts, and God puts the love of the Father in us by which we are then empowered to say no to the seductions of the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the ironic thing about that. Do you realize then that what God did is He empowered us not to love the world through the way in which He did love the world. Because this very same John tells us in his gospel, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
So the key to us not loving the world in the sinful sense is the way in which God did love the world in a saving sense. Are you with me there? That is the key. So not, not setting your sights somewhere else, but focusing on Christ and seeing the love of the Father, which didn't seek to, based on the world's value system, get from the world what it valued the most, but rather which sought to give to the world, based on God's value system, what God valued the most. Very different kind of love. And that's the love that God is calling us to show to the world along the lines of his example. But not to love the world in the way that is sinful, where we agree with it and its value system and try to gain from the world all of those passing pleasures. Believing the good news about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross to put the love of the Father in us is what will keep us from loving the world. When we trust in Jesus that way, his very life is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Receiving Jesus is the key. Now, Jesus never loved the world in that sinful sense. Jesus never gave into one of its temptations or seductions. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And where Adam and Eve failed in the garden and where we fail in life, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. You'll go back to Genesis and realize it's the same trick the devil has been pulling all along. He comes to Eve, and it's the, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And there it is. You see it in those temptations. When she saw in Genesis chapter 3 that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, good for food, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Same thing that we face today. The game has never changed. Satan is a one-trick pony, as they say. And Jesus has conquered him once and for all. You put your faith in Christ, and it's a done deal. You will not love the world. You will do the will of the Father. Christ will strengthen you. The Holy Spirit will be in your heart. And you will have the strength that you need to face this spiritual battle every single day. Amen. It's okay to say amen. So here's, here's what I'm going to say to you. If you've never done so before, will you receive Jesus Christ today? If you receive him, I promise he will receive you. And let me, let me wrap up with these words. It's an old song. I don't remember the name of the song, so don't ask me after the service because I'll disappoint you. And I've, I've slightly changed the words, but I thought it would be a very helpful prayer for us to close and it would turn our eyes to Christ. Lord, I need you near me. The world is ever near. I see its sparkling treasures, its tempting sounds I hear. It draws close to my heart from around and from within. But Jesus, you are closer still. Please shield my heart from sin. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that these words of yours, which have the ability, you say, to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to go to the deepest parts of a human being and make right what's not right, that these words would go into our heart, expel from us a love from the world and a love for the things of the world, and make us more like Christ so that we, like all who have been conquered by your grace, will be known in heaven as those who do the will of the Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.